Captain, we have them. We've established Transporter Lock, the Star Trek Discovery podcast. Join Ken and Sabriel each week as they explore strange new episodes, seek out new plots and new characters, and boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Hello and welcome to Transporter Lock, episode number 71 for Saturday, December 26th, 2020, Boxing Day. I'm your co-host, Chief Engineer Ken Gadney, and joining me as always is the Cut. other co-host. <laughs> Every week you're going to change it up now after last week, and I'm going to be thrown off. Hi, I'm Captain Sabriel Maston. You accused me of being formulaic. I must break that template. I made no accusations. You call yourself that. <laughs> Look, if I'm looking for reasons to be insulted, I will find them. <laughs> You should know this about me. Uh, careful, or, or I'm going to demote you to a soup dispenser, nozzle repair person, second technician. That's already among my sundry duties. <laughs> You're just going to, oh, kind of like how Burnham was both number one and science officer. I'm going to be just one thing now. Yes. I get it. Oh, man, multitasking sucks in the future. <laughs> and joining us this week is a special guest, chief librarian at Starfleet Academy, Kay Savitz. Hello, Kay. Hello. How are you today? Uh, pretty okay. How about you? I'm great, thanks. So, full disclosure, we are, as always, in separate rooms to ensure the highest quality of audio recordings. But it should be noted, Kay, you and I are just one floor apart right now. That's true. If I, if I stomp on the ground, can you hear that? Is that what that is? <laughs> yes. Damn it. <laughs> so, we are enjoying the holidays. And the anything like su- if you say anything like super smart or, or anything, I'm just going to like try to ruin it by stomping on the ground. <laughs> You certainly don't have to worry about that. Have you ever listened to this show? I have not. Oh! <laughs> Zing. Well, I don't watch... Until you got here and started quarantining with us, I had never seen the show. So I, why would I listen to a podcast about a show I'd never seen? Well, funny you should mention that. <laughs> Our mutual friend Andy does exactly that. It's, he figures, why spend an hour watching the show and then an hour listening to the podcast when I can just listen to the podcast and get the summary and their thoughts? And not pay oh. CBS. Right? We're free. <laughs> sure. Okay. All right. I see that logic, I guess. So, okay. What is your history with Star Trek? Uh, let's see. I've been watching Star Trek, uh, you know, my whole life. Uh, my my dad was super into it when I was a kid. And I got to say, it took me some time to warm up to it. I remember seeing like the, the original movies in the theaters with him and search for Spock and stuff. And I'm just like, this is not my thing, dad. Um, and, uh, but, but when next generation came out, I was hooked. I was in and I've been watching, uh, watching since then. So would you say, so you've been watching TNG, DS nine, Voyager enterprise. Yeah. Yes. I've seen, seen them all. Seen them, and all. Seen, do you them, have a- seen them most. Do I have a favorite? Um, Do you have a favorite series among those? I, I I think that I might be vilified, but I think Voyager might be my favorite. No, Voyager's great. Yeah, there's lots Voyager. of love about Voyager. What is it that makes it your favorite, if I may ask? Uh, I, I like uh, Captain Jane. I, the characters, I mean, the characters across the board, you know, Janeway and, and uh, uh, the whole crew, I think. There's... I don't know. I wasn't expecting an Inquisition here, but um, <laughs> I, I like the the, the storylines. I, I think that, I mean, compared to DS9, which is, you know, real dark and and, and uh, long arcs of story, eh, Voyager, you can just sit down and enjoy an episode and get on with your life. And uh, so I think that's, that's the kind of television that I need sometimes. Well, I've brought it up a few times in this show, this season, but I started listening to Delta Flyers, the podcast uh with uh um wow i'm just kidding tom paris and harry kim wow uh garrett wang garrett, garrett and, wang and robert duncan thank McNeil. you yes uh were they were watching the show and telling their stories about each episode and if you've not listened to it i highly suggest it because those two are quite entertaining the first episode they're kind of like figuring out what to do and they feel like and robert duncan mcneil feels like he's phoning it in kind of but after that it picks up and he is all in it's great What's this podcast called? Called the Delta Flyers. Great. Well, I have room in my life for one star, one new Star Trek podcast, and I know what it's going to be. <laughs> Ouch! Thanks, Bree. <laughs> I mean, yeah. 
we don't have star power. We're not. We were not. We were not on Star Trek. <laughs> but you know, one thing I like about Voyager that a lot of people seem to not like is Neelix, because as you just said, DS Nine was dark, but Star Trek is about optimism for the future, and Neelix is possibly the most optimistic character in any Star Trek series. True, I would agree with that. Yeah, I, I, you know, he gets a lot of hate. I don't hate him. No, no, and, I, and you know, I bet he's a good cook. <laughs> Get, he just needs to be given a chance, right? So, so Kay, prior to my arrival on your doorstep, you had not seen Star Trek Discovery because you don't have CBS All Access, and yet you were undeterred from jumping in with me and joining the watching of the show midway through season three. Now, some people might find that intimidating. What was your incentive to say, "Hey"? I don't have the backstory and I don't need it. I'm going to enjoy it anyway. Um, I was sitting on the couch looking at my laptop and you put on a, sh- a show that might be interesting. So I paid attention. It was <laughs> really that simple. It was a Thursday night. That, that I was on the couch on a Thursday night. That was it. Um, I, if, if I don't know. If it's if a show is, is so... In my experience, Star Treks are not so dense and opaque that you can't kind of jump in the middle and sort of figure you know it out you might not know the interactions of every character or what the ranks are and anything but it's not a show that that uh has 20 years of back plot and backstory to know about so mm. you know just wanted some uh some fun sci-fi and it helps that you are a trekkie and you have an understanding of the basic technologies of star trek Yes, although I might need you to uh, explain uh, trans- transporters to me one more time. I'm still not sure. <laughs> you see, your soul is destroyed, and they. Uh, oh. <laughs> That's right. We're all just replicants. It's fine. Cool, 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 cool. Excellent. And why are you the chief librarian at Starfleet Academy? What led you down that career path? Well, you know, I worked a, a long time as a as a barista at the at the Starbucks at at. Starfleet Academy, um, and I just saw these all these uh, smart people coming in and out on their way to the to library, and I thought I, I want to spend more time in the library. So uh, I replicated myself a book about how to be a librarian. And <laughs> the test was real easy, I got to say, and a lot of the, uh, the stuff that you can know, you know, about being a, a, a barista uh, really translates to to being a librarian. <laughs> And I understand you've made quite a few contributions to a certain online library as well. Uh, Internet Archive? Are you talking about the Internet Archive? I love the Internet Archive, which is a uh, a nonprofit uh, archive and and library of uh, of everything. They've got books and and movies and uh, old 78 records, I mean, hundreds, thousands, millions of these things. Um, And my particular contribution there is uh, uploading a lot of uh, computer history. Uh, microcomputer history, especially uh, Atari 8-bit stuff. And I've uploaded thousands of things that uh, somebody might find useful someday. <laughs> nice. Awesome. If somebody wants to follow along with all your online adventures, where would they do that? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at uh, K Savitz, S-A-V-E-T-Z. Awesome. There'll be a link in the show notes. So before we get to this week's episode of Discovery, I want to mention that, Kay, you and I had the amazing holiday pleasure of binging all 10 short treks, which I had never seen a second time. And then we also went back and watched season one, episode seven, Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad, because one of the short treks was about Harry Mudd. And after watching it, I thought, "Mm, maybe we should watch a Harry Mudd episode. So you've seen a lot more than just season three. You've seen quite a cross-section of Discovery in the past week. Yes, I went from nothing to having seen some episodes. In, yeah. in the past week. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed the the, uh, the short treks. I think with you, I, I think I call them a short attention span theater. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can pay attention to anything for, for 15 minutes. Um, and they were a lot of fun. And uh, yeah. Yeah. And they were fun to easily pick which ones we wanted to watch. There was no real order to well, them. We ended up watching all of them. Yes. Yeah, but I started off by showing you Q&A because I thought... Well, Spock is a character you know, and I thought that was one of my favorite episodes because it has, uh, it, it demonstrates their personalities. It has some serious, some levity, mostly levity, mm-hmm. and I thought that would be a good intro. I actually was trying to get you hooked on uh, Lower Decks, and I thought, well, if I'm going to show them a less than an hour episode of Star Trek, maybe I can fill up the rest of the time with a short trek. So we watched 
one episode of Lower Decks, one episode of Short Treks. And much to my surprise, it was the Short Treks that you were more interested in. And I was delighted by that because that is probably more relevant to us talking about Discovery on this podcast anyway. Mm-hmm. Yay. Yay. So let's talk about this week's episode, Season 3, Episode 11, Sukal, in which they finally arrive at the nebula that they suspect is the origin of the burn. They beam down, this is the brief TLDR, and find a Kelpian quote-unquote child living in a holodeck, while the Osira it makes its way to the nebula as well and hijacks Discovery. The end. Whew. So where shall we begin assessing this week's episode? Bree, any suggestions? Oh, well, first, my first thoughts about this entire episode, when I walked away from this episode, was this is one of the most beautiful like 45 minutes of TV visually that I've ever seen. Uh, like the books seen flying in the nebula earlier was just gorgeous. The Celt monster was gorgeous. And that was what I walked away from this episode. Uh, I wanted to just make sure I get it there. Cause I just thought that was just a beautiful episode. Yeah. You know, book had previously mentioned that his ship can morph and we had seen it in passing, but I feel like this was the first real evidence we've seen of how versatile and useful that skill can be. Yeah, just just gorgeous, gorgeous shots. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like, the big thing about this episode was on the planet. Everything else felt kind of like filler until part two to me. Should we go to the planet? Oh, interesting. You know, when we had that previous episode where they went to Book's home planet and our review on this podcast was really the stuff happening on the ship was more interesting than what was happening on the planet. I kind of felt a little similar this time. Like I wanted to see more of what was happening on the ship with Tilly as captain than I did what was going on in a holodeck. I felt like, okay, this stuff with Tilly as captain was, was adorable. I I enjoyed that, um, that arc, but before they got down to the planet, I felt it was a lot of, a lot of talky talky. And I, I wrote down in my notes here, <laughs> this is more soap opera than Star Trek. And it was all, <laughs> it's the it season just, in that shell. <laughs> and it was, I mean, I felt like the first act, I was just like, Oh, come on, let's do some space. Let's do some shooting. Um, you know, let's talk more action. They, they were, uh, let's talk about, um, I don't remember. They were the, the first, it started off with, with the, with the, 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 the funeral, uh, thing and people talking about that, and then let's—I don't know. It just went, it just went on and on. And oh, and uh, Gray talking to their their host, and it, it was just a lot of walk and talk. And uh, I don't know. I felt it was started real slow. Well, yeah, you know, it totally did because this one is a continuation of the pre- previous episode. Like that scene happened in the one before that, and I suppose they cut it because it didn't quite fit with that episode. So they put it here. Uh, but you're right. It, it did open up very slow uh, relatives. And you really have to be invested, in, especially you know, Dira at that point, to really follow that. And a little bit of Culber and Stamets, uh, the gay dads. Uh. <laughs> I was surprised that Stamets was checking his email at a funeral. I mean, they, you turn off your notifications for an event like that. Rude. <laughs> Honestly. Well, no, I mean, the, the talky-talky was done for about the the ceremony. So in this part, it's just everyone's commuting with each other. So we probably turn notifications back on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you're right. That, that is the scene where we finally get Grey coming back to Adira. And that arc has kind of been on and off. Like, I'm not sure where they're going with it. I'm not sure that it was really all that significant that Grey went away and what the significance is of Grey coming back. And, I mean, Grey explained why that happened, but... Does it really move anything forward? I'm not sure. Move anything forward? No, it's going to be important for some reason because that we are totally oblivious to. Because I mean, the way they just stuck it in there and forgot it. And I, I wrote down the quotes. He's like, "You're the only one that can see me, and that's not how it's supposed to be." And even earlier in the season, like, "Why can I see you?" I don't know. Okay, there's something more here going on, and I don't know if that's going to be a season three thing or an overarching series thing. To figure out. Well, Adira did take some initiative near the end of this episode, which suggests that they are going to be an important character for the next episode or two. So oh, yeah. th- there is the opportunity for that to come back in a big way. Can I ask a general question before we get to the planet? Yes. Admiral Vance. Yes. Now, I've only seen a few episodes of this. And I, in 
TNG, when an admiral showed up, you knew they were, e- they were evil, either evil or incompetent. <laughs> wow. Um, admiral Vance doesn't seem incompetent. Is he evil? This is a question I've been asking all season. Uh, the badmiral, as a term, uh, fans use. And I have not been able to completely shake that something is going on with this future federation. But I can never put a finger on just what it is. Mm-hmm. Now, it, that, that feeling has slowly dwindled over the course of the season, but I still can't shake it. I still feel like something's up. And maybe he's completely 100% on the up and up, but the show is doing a really good job of making me feel like it's not. And you, I, I'm glad I'm not alone here. Well, you, you know, I think what it is, is there are some institutions, even in today's age, where the individuals within the institution are good, but the institution as a whole is corrupt or broken. For example, a lot of us complain about the healthcare system, and yet most of the individual doctors we interact with for our own personal healthcare are good. And so I feel like the Admiral is probably a good guy, but this is the Federation of a thousand years from now. We've seen individuals like the Vulcans say that the Federation has not done them any favors. There was that short trek Calypso where Kraft was running away from the Vidrash, which is another name for the Federation. So we don't know what the Federation has done in these last thousand years that the Admiral now has to represent. So he may be a good guy representing an organization that is not the Federation we know. Right. Thank you. But you're right. Some, he sends mixed signals. Like one episode, he can be what we think of as a jerk. And the next episode, he's telling Saru, go do this mission to save your one crew person, as opposed to helping us in the war effort. You know, your ship's morale is more important. And that seems like a good guy. So I don't know. And now we know the other, well, I last week I hypothesized that Van, Admiral Vance is trying to keep discovery away from the, uh, from Osira, uh, and his dilithium supply. Uh, well, now we know, or at least adding to it, that he was keeping Saru away from the military exercises that were on his homeworld or at his homeworld. Right. Because those exercises moved to Kaminar, which is the Kelpian homeworld, and Saru nearly fell for the bait. He said, we can jump there immediately. And we're like, that's, exactly what the enemy wants. Let's not do that. In actuality, it might have been actually the best course of action to keep Osira from a wave because Osira was going here. Yeah, and apparently the Osira can track the jumps of the Discovery, which is worrisome. Yeah, we still don't know. Like, like Admiral Vance last week said, are you sh- about that device? Like, tracking. Uh, so like a GPS tracker under the edge of the hull. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, like, Either they have some kind of way to track discovery that is going to be part of the plot, like that device or GPS tracker stuck underneath the hull, or she can detect the jumps. Like they, they didn't have an answer for that this time. They had a hypothesis. Yeah, you know, since we're talking about that character and her ship, let's talk about their encounter with Discovery in this episode. So apparently Discovery can now cloak, which is not something we knew about and which violates the Algernon treaties. So that's really interesting. We don't know what's happened with the Klingons and the Romulans in the last thousand years. But they should have cloaked before Osira showed up. I thought that too, especially the instant they thought, or Tilly thought, huh. But I think they mentioned the cloak early on. Like Saru was going through a checklist of what they've added to the ship. Oh, you're right. And But of course, we've never seen it used it. And then here to do it, la- like when they're already here, and then also not move, uh, is a little weird. <laughs> um, it's like, oh shit, blankets! I mean, oh shoot, blankets. Yeah. Just, uh, let's just stay right here. <laughs> you can't see us, but we're still here. Yeah. No, it's kind of was... like maybe if we close our eyes and they, if we can't see them, they can't see us. <laughs> and that was a little weird to me, but hey, uh, they were clearly not using that as a focus of some kind of tactic strategy. The show wasn't as written, so whatever. Mm. Um, uh, yeah. No, I, I, off. I had some concerns, as previously stated, about. Tilly's ability to perform under pressure. As a counselor and compliment to Saru, I think she does a great job. As a substitute for Saru when he's unavailable, I lacked confidence. Kay, what, how do you think Tilly did when she was face to face with her enemy? I think, I mean, I think you felt like she lacked confidence because she lacks confidence, but it's her first time in the chair and she did great. She made 
the best choices that she could with the information she had. She fiddled with her burr under the seat, helped her calm down. I don't know what that was about, but there you go. Um, I, I, I am, I am team Tilly. Cool. <laughs> uh, to me, the whole thing with Michael telling her about the burr for me, that just landed so well. It's like this to me, it added some kind of realism to the captain's seat. Cause we usually don't see the captains being nervous, even if they, you know, would be in any situation. Cause usually Picard has an air of, you know, like, He's here, you know, he's here to do it. Or, or even, uh, I mean, just any captain. You don't see them being nervous. and But you, you just know they would be. And well, that just made it things much more real. Their first time in the chair, though. Also that, too. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I think the last time we saw a captain being nervous was also their first time in the chair. And that was Captain Harrison of the Enterprise B <laughs> at the beginning of Star Trek Seven Generations. We'll find out on Tuesday. Right. Now, like nothing was installed yet, and eventually he just turned to Admiral Kirk and he's like, "Could w- would you like to do this? Because clearly you're better at this than I am, and you're here." So, uh, Bree, what did you think of the interaction between Tilly and her green-faced foe? Oh, I loved it. I was like, you know what? Damn, Tilly, uh, you do have it. Just a little more practice. I felt sorry for Tilly because her first command, of course, something's going to go wrong because it's discovery. Uh, but I think she handled it well. I loved how she was just like taking everything she's learned from psych, uh, her her lessons, uh, her psychiatric, yeah, what wow, her psych, psych. visits, and uh, turning it right back on Osara. <laughs> I thought it was funny that her you know very psychological framework about Freud and projection was just another way of saying I'm rubber and you're glue. <laughs> yep, I thought that was great. Uh, I loved it. I loved it. Um, I can't wait to see more. I do admire her in that scene because I never expect to feel threatened. Like, as, and so I, my, by the time my defenses are up, it's already too late. And so for her to be able to take that rather critical and accurate analysis about, oh, you're everybody's friend, but deep down, you know, you're a fraud and not be externally ruffled by it. That is something I wish I could do. Oh, she was holding as much of it in. If you watch her face and her reaction, like she is holding so much in and doing her best and she overcame it. That's what's really powerful about that for me. Oh, oh, I know. I agree. And I think the actor did a great job conveying that those insults were hitting home for her and made her really uncomfortable, but it didn't affect her captaincy in that moment. And yeah. that's what I admire. So good. So good. I love that scene. I just love that scene. And yet, in the end, <laughs> she was unable to save the discovery. That I, I, I was really surprised by just how quickly things moved in the end there. I don't think Saru could have done much of it either. Or Michael. All of a sudden, they were just there doing the pack-led thing of... Uh, spoilers, sorry. Uh, <laughs> of putting uh, spaceship tentacles on your ship. Yeah, I'd, I'd never seen anything like that. And I'm also very surprised that the Orion's seemed to know exactly how the spore drive worked and where to go. And this is in the context of having just watched Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad, where Harry Mudd is looping through Discovery multiple times, 30 minutes at a time, to try to figure out how the spore drive works. And he knows there's a missing component and he can't figure out what it is until finally Stamet says, I can't bear to watch you kill anybody anymore. It's me. I'm what you're looking for. And this episode of Discovery we see the Orions beam directly to engineering and put a, a slave crown on Stamets' head and make him jump. And that was a very efficient uh, reverse engineering of how does Discovery do this? You're right. You're right. And also those slave crowns, like, why don't they just mass produce them? <laughs> That's your ultimate weapon right there. <laughs> They have to be 3D printed on Etsy. It takes a while. Yeah, shipping and, and you know, who knows oh, how busy yeah. their d- d- seller is. And So many packages are being delayed nowadays. And, uh, yeah. I don't think we'd seen technology quite like that before, have we? Replicate Etsy technology? No, no. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean the uh, neural inhibitor or whatever you want to call it. I mean, we've seen variations on that, I'm guessing. I like. Like, even, uh, in a sense, like, Jordy had them, the Romulans. And I was thinking about how he was the Manchurian candidate, yeah. Yeah, in those various ways, just never this device. Yeah. Uh, Romulans are good for that. The Orions and the Romulans are collaborating. 
I mean, it's been lots of years. I can see. I want, it doesn't have to be a whole government. It could be just a few people. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of technology has proliferated across civilizations in the last thousand years. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, the the Vidians didn't have this tech, but that ship and the tentacles thing remind me of the Vidians and the way they would clamp onto ships. Uh, well, that, that was on Voyager, right? Uh-huh. And so just, it reminded me of that. I'm not saying it's the same or anything like that, but it gave me that vibe and I thought, like, oh yeah, this is this is so original series type Star, Star Trek. I mean, a huge ship comes out of nowhere and grabs onto your ship with tentacles. They didn't have the tech to be able to show that on TV back then, <laughs> but that's exactly what happened here. Or even, um, I mean, we have a kid who causes the burn uh, because of some magic planet. I mean, that's mm-hmm. very original series. Mm-hmm. And... Oh, I got a kick out of that. I like that. Or, or even at the end of season two, we saw two starships uh, clamp onto each other so that people could run from one ship to the other without using transporters. Yeah. You know, that sort of physical connection is seems more prevalent in this era. And But apparently the purpose of those tentacles wasn't to keep Discovery in place like I originally thought. It was that it could spore jump with the other ship, which you would think would require... Either like, um, I mean, I don't know what's in the tentacles. I don't know what sort of connection it may be on physical, but I would think that it would require more power at least to jump that much of a larger mass. And I was really surprised to see both ships disappear at the end there. I mean, it might. Maybe Stamets is suffering right now. We just haven't seen him yet too. Oh, that's true. Because we saw him do a lot of jumps at the end of season one. He paid the price for that. Now, one thing I'm wondering is it's rare that we see an enemy force take hold of a Federation vessel in its entirety. The last time I can think of is in Voyager when the Kazon took control of the ship and we had the Doctor and Suter still on board to bring the ship back to Captain Janeway and Suter paid the ultimate price for that. I am trying to figure out how they might get the ship back, how they can get Discovery back in the last two or three episodes of the season. Kay, do you have any theories about that? Like what's going to happen? I got nothing. Nothing. <laughs> I do. They're going to use the same transport conduit that Osara got used to get there. Oh, so that's how they're going to get back to Starfleet headquarters? Yeah, yeah. Like it's it's not in a like that's uh, the ability to travel there is not out of the question. So that's what they're going to do. They're going to do that, or they're going to be in the planet. They're on a planet of Dilithium. It's not refined or anything like that, but whatever. But I think they're going to use that hmm. that tunnel again. So that's how they get back to Discovery, but how do they reclaim Discovery? Sneak on board. Teleporters or transporters. Uh, I mean, I assume the tele- I assume transporters don't work when the shields are up, and in this episode, they hadn't put shields up yet because they were still regenerating in order for them to jump back into the nebula. Uh, they do apparently work because when uh, Discovery popped up above the planet, they had to beam people down. And mm. they still had shields up. Oh, you're right. Yeah, shields were dropping as a result of being in the nebula. They couldn't afford to lower them entirely in order to get people onto the holodeck planet. So I don't Interesting. know. I don't know. I mean, I always thought it strange that you can't beam through your own shields. I would think that you would have the frequencies attuned, kind of like how you can fire phasers through your own shields. Uh-huh. But, you know, that's a complaint going back centuries in Star Trek. So maybe by the 32nd century or whatever, they have finally figured it out. I'm also, I mean, for plot reasons, I can understand why Osiris didn't kill anybody. Like, I, Tilly even said, if you want to get me out of this chair, you're going to have to shoot me. And Osiris is the kind of person that I would expect to say, okay, boom. Cool, cool, cool. But, cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what I expected that, too. But that didn't happen. So I guess that sp- bodes well for our crew being reunited. <laughs> there was one very important thing that I'm not pleased with this episode. Let's hear it. Book put Grudge in danger. No, Grudge. Grudge had to go through the DNA recombobulator or whatever they call it again that they <laughs> use all the time this season. Uh, yeah, Grudge wasn't put in danger. That is not cool. Yeah, I mean, Grudge had radiation exposure and she was favoring her left paw. Well, that grudge. was an excuse to get alone time <laughs> with Michael. Of course, but poor grudge actually you know a friend of the show dana who was on just a few weeks ago for christmas got the grudge shirt the official shirt from <laughs> star trek.com nice yeah uh let's see so i know we're going a little out of order but speaking of reuniting the crew since discovery is now headed to starfleet headquarters 
we saw Colbert and Saru stay on the planet at the end, and then Adira beamed down there as well, and then we have Burnham and Book on the scout ship. So we have crew in three different places right now. Can somebody explain to me why Saru and Culber stayed on the planet when they knew that they only had like a few hours left before they die of radiation poisoning? What's the benefit to anybody of them staying behind? I mean, they said it in the episode, but... We're, yeah, they're trying to keep the, another burn from happening, which somehow they decided that the, the man baby was going to make happen again if he got too sad or something. I don't know. <laughs> so I can understand them keeping the man baby happy for another hour or two. But after that, there's nothing to stop another burn from happening. It's a very temporary measure of them staying behind, well, it feels like. They didn't know Discovery was going to get pooped, poofed away. Uh, but also, like they, ta- they had a very quick discussion about this where uh, Saru's like, I got to get back to Discovery. Michael is like, no, you got to stay here. You're the one who's saying this song. You're the one who can calm him down. Uh, and they're like, okay, I will. Michael's like, I'll go. And let's go, Culber. And Culber's like, no, I got to stay here. I know what it's like to be trapped alone for a long time. Uh, I was there. I, that was me in season two. He didn't say that part. Uh, <laughs> and he finally feels like he has purpose, he said, uh, being in the future. How much would we see him be, you know, like there for everybody? He's finally, this is what he's been craving to do apparently or, or this is something that's giving him meaning is helping others who feel alone and you can see that a little bit with Adira as well uh, but it's more Stamets is taking that, a bunch of that but they're the gay dads for a reason uh, so, so that's why they're staying behind they think they can do it uh, well Michael's like okay well someone's gonna get back there <laughs> so the hope for Saru and Culber is that Discovery comes back and beams them aboard with Sukal the kid yeah, uh, as far as they know, Discovery is still there. Michael's right. got to get out and go grab them and come back, beam them all up, and we're all good to go. Um, so, wh- so why didn't Book beam up Saru, Culber, and Sukal? No idea. Maybe they're just—they don't know what the kid can do. They don't know how far away he has to be. It just seems like the whole point of the episode was well, that they were rescuers that they were supposed okay. to bring back Sukal and at the end they decided to leave him there. Sukal also doesn't know the outside world. This kid is would be traumatized extremely if all of a sudden he was just beamed somewhere where he is pretty sure the outside world universe is gone. They need to calm him down and show him that Can it's going to be okay. Beam him to the the, the holodeck on Discovery and not just they won't know that he won't even have to know that he's in a new place. I mean that's a temporary solution if they even have a holodeck. We, don't we don't, uh, they didn't back then in it when the show came out, but sure. they might have gotten one in this upgrade to the future federation. Well, we have all these mysterious upgrades that. Yeah, that exactly. <laughs> they can they can make one up here, uh, more or less, uh, sure. if, if the designers need or the show writers need it. Well, I'm I'm now realizing a gap in my knowledge. Was the burn caused by Sukal or was it? caused by the combination of Sukal being on a dilithium planet. Because if it's the former, then I can see bringing him to Discovery would freak him the heck out, like you just said, Sabriel, and cause another burn. And that's a good reason to leave on the planet until he is calm. But if removing him from the dilithium planet eliminates the combination that made the burn possible, then you want would want to get him away as quickly as possible. Uh, well, I don't, it, I don't think it was 100% clear, but it seems like they're going with the it's him because of the way he was born. Like they mentioned, like, Something happened in utero that basically gave him, you know, special powers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, I mean, it's, I think it's safe to assume that they don't know. So they're taking the quote unquote best course of action and keeping him here where he is until he, they think he's ready. Okay. Has it, Star Trek has, has spent a lot of time in the, the trope of like the all powerful baby could like destroy the galaxy, right? Mm-hmm. This is not the first time we've done this. <laughs> I mean, we've had Gary Seven, you know, like all these uh, omnipotent people who become gods or omnipotent beings or omnipotent beings being all over right. the place. Uh, yeah. No, and that's why it feels very TOS to me. Right. Well, this one, this one specifically reminded me of um, the the Next Generation episode. I had to look it up. Future Imperfect, where there's the 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 boy who's or the being or whatever whose whose parents were dying and left him. Uh, a hollow, a hollow world in order to to survive, and then he tries to to trap Riker there. But I mean, mm-hmm. here's here's a here's a, a young child whose parents have died living in a 
in a, in a hollow world that he can control. It's like, oh, this real familiar. Mm-hmm. They did it on Enterprise even, first season. Yeah. Uh, when Odo was on show. Uh, Rene Abergenois. Oh, that's right. He had a whole holographic village, right? And he was mm-hmm. like the one real person. Yeah. Uh, and that's the right. daughter. Yeah. That's right. Also, brief uh, correction. You said Gary Seven. I think you meant Gary Mitchell. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mitchell Seven. Or no, I'm thinking of Galileo Seven. <laughs> no, no. Gary Seven was a character when they went okay. back to uh, 1968. Gotcha. That's right. That's right. In the time travel assignment. Episode. Assignment Earth. Uh, is he related to Seven of Nine? I'm confused. <laughs> Gary Mitchell Seven of Nine. <laughs> oh, my God. It's all one big happy family. Gosh. Uh, yeah, there are a lot of things they're using again in this episode, like the the holodecks and the unimpotent baby. And speaking of which, well, I, I have a couple of thoughts here. One, the burn originally occurred a few years, I think, after the distress signal was sent. And if it's caused by Sukal being agitated, I'm positing that it coincided with his mother dying. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. The, the, the other... Wow, I have a lot of thoughts, actually. Uh, Bree, in last week's episode, when we saw the distress signal and the radiation burns, you wrote in the notes that you and I share offline that you suspected they were not radiation burns, and you were correct. What led you to that theory? Because Saru's reaction, or lack of a reaction, uh, Tilly made a comment like, we think that's radiation burns, and Saru just stares. Like, no, he would have gone, mm-hmm, or something like that. And so his reaction or half non-reaction was what cued that in. I wonder why he didn't share that theory uh, with his crew. And I wonder if that led to him not sharing information with the bad Uh I mean, a lot of this feels like he was keeping a lot close and he even did that too. Vance even called him out on it last week. Mm-hmm. Like, and he was like, he would just try to hide it as well. We didn't want to just bother you with minor details. Mm-hmm. And, and also, Sukal, they, they keep calling him the child, but he must be, like, over 100 years old, right? Yeah, but he, he's, like, an adult child, one who didn't have anybody to grow up with except holograms. And so, Sure. Yeah. I can totally see how his emotional maturity would be stunted, but it leaves me wondering two things. One, how old do Kelpians live to be? And two, the holographic elder in this episode, how old did he have to be to be an elder? Because at one point, Saru even said, this is the oldest Kelpian I've ever seen. Well... Five minutes earlier, Sukal was the oldest Kelpian he'd ever seen. <laughs> so th- there's a lot we don't know about this maturity's, uh, this alien's life cycle. Absolutely true. Uh, we'll get more. We're starting to see more and more of them. Although I did love the flashbacks to The Brightest Star, the short trek that had Saru on his own planet. Yes, I, I enjoyed that too. I also enjoyed... Um, Hold on, hold on. I'll have to train of thought. If you had more, continue on. Well, we also got to see Saru without makeup, which I'm sure the actor loved. <laughs> that was brilliant. I'm so glad they found a way to have Doug Jones be on the show. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, when they said that Cobra was Bajoran and then Saru starts to walk out on screen, you don't see his face yet. I'm like, oh, there's only one direction this could go. Doug Jones is a human because he has been in so many scary movies where he's some sort of a, an alien or a demon or some other nightmare. And he has this, these physical gates that he inhabits and these just a bizarre way to move his body. And I'm like, the, the freakiest thing you could do with Doug Jones at this point is none of that. <laughs> uh, I love that they had uh, the kid uh sukal actually run like saluru walks the tans behind his back i thought that was so neat to see just a little detail that this thing that uh doug jones invented for saru uh others are using oh i didn't even notice that i did notice that doug jones moves his arms like that even when he's human which i found consistent so that was neat Kay, you had a theory at one point in the episode Let's not talk about my theories that turned out to be completely wrong. <laughs> well, I don't know that they are wrong. I'm still trying to figure out the correlation between Sukal and I think what we're calling the kelp monster. Right. So, okay. So the they they kept calling, they kept saying there was a life sign on the planet. They kept calling it the life sign, the life sign, and the the way that they kept doing that, I thought that they were trying to make us infer that the life sign was the the man-child. Uh, but 
maybe the life sign was in fact the monster, the kelp monster. And I don't, so anyway, I, I, that was my theory for a while. And I don't think it's, that's the way it's going to, it's turning out to be. Um, but I might've been smart there for a minute, but I wasn't. The, <laughs> the, I thought the kelp monster was, maybe it'll play out and it'll turn out to be something awesome, but it seemed like too much. There's so much going on in this episode with, with what's her name? Odessia? Osira. With Osira. And then with trying to convince the, 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 the baby to, to, that everything's okay and pretending to be a hologram and, 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 and there's, there's this, you know, mysterious lost style smoke monster that nobody quite understands terrorizing everybody. It's like one, one thing too many, I thought to juggle. No, I, I walked away with this, this episode, both times I watched it kind of feeling exhausted. Uh, you're not alone. Like there was so much, like, a very slow start. And then it's just bam, 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 go, 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 go. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe it's good that they broke up. I wish they wouldn't have broken up. I mean, the episodes, like, yeah, this the uh, next episode in this line. But man, I'm glad they did too. Because <laughs> gosh, I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't understand why the smoke monster from Lost is even in this fictional world that his mother left behind. Like, okay. we haven't yeah. seen that Sukal has created any new programs of his own. So if that's true, then that implies the smoke monster was part of the original design for what his mother left behind, which seems very abusive of his mother. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and I think there was a theory that it was a, a manifestation of his fear or something like that, or it could be a, a perfectly uh, beneficial hologram type thing that has degraded as, as the, the program seemed to be doing, but, I don't know, but I just felt story-wise it was unnecessary. What was it that Sukal was even doing near the end? It looked like he had gone into his citadel and was stacking rocks? Making more of his protective runes from that monster. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's something that Saru and the Elder talked about. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I didn't make that connection. Thank you. I liked that little Elder scene. Uh, especially the second time I watched it. Uh, we got this clip, which I thought was beautiful, of a Kelpian nursery, like seaweed hanging down to the lights, and this little room with little drawings on the wall. It's like this is really sweet. And then you get this uh, this elder who's telling the story, and he sings a lullaby. And Saru, and then he holds Saru, and Saru gets closer. He's getting this connection to Kelpians that he's been struggling to get for so long, and he's getting this. Like this is why he's kind of struggling with this being here as well a bit. Like he's getting this taste of home. Yeah, it was sweet. He misses his home, and um, and he had yeah an, an old an, an old grandpa guy singing him a, a lullaby that maybe he he remembered, and uh, that was kind of sweet. I loved it. And speaking of lullaby, I have to go back and listen to the music. But is this the same song that everyone in the galaxy seems to know? Oh, is mm. it? Mm. I I have not gone back to confirm yet. That's my hypothesis until I go back and check. I mean, it's also going to be, be difficult to hear like person singing versus instrumentation, but I'm going to try. Because that is still an unresolved plot. Like they have revealed more information that the distress signal and the song have the same frequency or whatever, but it still doesn't explain how did it permeate through the entire universe and into people's synaptic pathways. I could see it as Sukal was thinking at hearing it when his mother died. Like maybe she was singing it to him, and then the burn happens, and that bit, huge audio wave uh, gets into everyone's mental inboxes throughout the universe. And it's <laughs> like, here's this beautiful music. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm just here in my head, creatively. And when you have a bunch of different planets who can no longer talk to each other, no one's gonna be like, hey, right? Hey, that's weird. I have that song too. <laughs> um, but also, I th- when security officer who left our bars in. Drawing a blank on her None. None. I think she recognized the song as something older. Like she recognized it. And so that would kind of break that. But I might be just misremembering some of the details on things she said. I mean, if the song permeated throughout the universe a hundred years ago, then it certainly had time to be passed down through the generations. Yeah, but she wouldn't know it. Well, if it was sung to her by her parents. 
uh, Anon is from. Oh, the past. Yeah. And so, but I could be just misremembering some of the details of what happened in that scene. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, so if if she remembers it from her childhood, then my hypothesis of this lullaby was sung throughout the universe or galaxy is wrong. But uh, I'm going to stick with it until I review the footage. (laughs) (laughs) It's also surprising and impressive that there's been only one burn, that there has not been other instances of Sukal just getting really agitated. Uh, clearly it seems to require external influence, whether it's his mother or visitors from the outside. But nonetheless, I can tell you from experience, especially after this year, I can be very good at being alone and terrified. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it might've been, there might've been a lack of local problems too, that weren't detected outside of the region. Yeah. Because the, pulse wave in this episode was localized. I was impressed that it reached as far as it did outside the nebula and into the Discovery and the Viridian. Is there anything else about this episode we haven't discussed yet? I enjoyed the computer's broken attempts at communication with the, with uh, Discovery's crew, like the Vulcan at the... We saw the... It was the book Ba'u or what, Ba'el, whatever. The, the people yeah. who were tormenting. They have an alliance yeah. now. Uh, their alliance... Yeah, and joining, and then that Vulcan, I just love them. It's like calling them like, you are the anticipated issue, <laughs> yes or no. Uh, I just got to kick that. I can either do like a, a, a static appreciation or right. defense protocol. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then we are the anticipated input. And then everyone just starts applauding like, oh, oh yay. <laughs> I, I love that. I love the computer. But it's trying. a really bad defensive program that says, if you don't give us this answer, we'll kill you. Like, oh, we'll give you that answer then. <laughs> First, they're the rescuers. Uh, but no, I mean, we kind of touched on some things. Like, I feel exhausted. Uh, Discovery is yet again doing this thing of like, I just feel like it's a serial show. A show now. I mean, just like Deep Space Nine got to be. And but I feel like, you no, know, they want to give you tugs of like, here, keep watching to find out what happens. But I feel like there's too many strings to follow. I mean, it, it's not maybe not as too many, but the way they're doing it is just exhausting. It's- and I mentioned this last week or a week or two ago. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot to keep a track of, right? And it's a lot to jump into in the middle if you haven't been watching it for three seasons. I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> Which gets into into why, uh, you know, like I said, I I liked Voyager. Like you could, you know, they're they're trapped in the gamma quadrant. Got it. It's all I need to know. <laughs> you know. And uh, other than that, it was everything was just. You can watch an episode and walk away. And be oh, okay. for sure. Star Trek has changed, at least in the, in this incarnation of it, with the serialized television. Like, Lower Decks might be more for you. There's a loose story the whole time, but it's not really connected that closely. Uh, I don't know your style of humor, but you might enjoy it. Uh, but, like, for right now, at least, that old style of Star Trek is no more. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, I mean especially honestly, yeah. not just the Spore Drive and Osira and the Viridian, but up until last week, we were also dealing with the mirror universe and also the fact that they've jumped a thousand years into the future. And yet Georgiou leapt back in time when she was in the guardian of forever, which is from TOS. So there's a lot going on here. And if you don't have that, you know, 60 years of backstory to a degree, you can jump in and follow along and appreciate, but there are some things that you're going to miss. And because you weren't just not watching last season, but you also weren't watching back in 1966. Or in the 50 years right. in between. Uh, so, but, oh, uh, I mean, I, I'm still, I'm very interested in what happens, but I'm tired. <laughs> I'm curious to know. I mean, we've talked about how they're going to get Discovery back, but also, Osira jumped her ship to Federation headquarters. She said that the coordinates were already laid in. Now, she does not really have much of a military advantage that she didn't have before. The primary function that she wanted the discovery for was the spore drive in a future where dilithium is limited and the emerald chain is running out of dilithium. So she now has an easy way to get around. But her first mission is to attack Federation headquarters, which I presume she already knew the location of. So it's not like she's gained the coordinates or she's gained a new weapon. She has a, a spore drive. And I'm wondering... How she's going to use that at Federation headquarters and how they're going to stop her. Because there are probably a lot of ships present. Like we saw the USS Voyager J, the USS Nog, 
all these other ships that you would think in numbers would be able to overpower the Viridian. Don't forget, they are in a huge cloak bubble. And part of the first half part of the season was to try to find the Federation. I mean, space is pretty big. Uh, I don't know if she actually knew where it actually had, was headquarters right now. That's true. It's possible she didn't. I just, for some reason, I thought that it was a secret to discovery only because they were from a thousand years ago and they didn't know who to talk to. But I would think that the intelligence network that the Emerald Chain probably has would have found that out. But you're right. We don't know that for sure. And this might be new information to her. And so a surprise attack... Yeah especially if you're warping right into their backyard with a new sport drive, that could be quite the military advantage. Yeah. I mean, they had Adira to find Federation too. Like remember Adira was the one who had that information. That reminds me. Uh, One thing I forgot was Adira beamed down to the Dilithium planet at the end of the episode with anti-radiation medication. Oh yeah. But yeah. Burnham, Culber, and Saru had also beamed down with anti-radiation medication, and they lost it in the holodeck. So why would Adira's medication not also be lost? Uh, well, Adira doesn't know that. You're right. They, they... Uh, but you're right. You're right. I, I guess uh, we'll see right. next you're, week. No, you're <laughs> correct. Adira doesn't know that. And so they're going in with the best of intentions. And yet, for all we know, they're just sacrificing themselves ultimately the same way that the original crew that beam down absolutely right maybe it's a whole we'll see or maybe it's important uh, i mean maybe in their limited time before the radiation poisoning kicks in adira culber and saru will figure out some way to interact with the holodeck programming and find their medication because of the three people i just mentioned only adira is an engineer so it seems likely that they yeah. will lose radiation medication but they will be the ones of them all to find yeah, it. Maybe as well. a can work into the holographic systems. And I'm also thing. curious how the holodeck will interpret Adira. How much you want to bet Adira is going to show up as a troll? <laughs> maybe. I think I think that would be maybe. on brand. Oh, I have yeah. one final note that I forgot. I have one little bullet point. It was just about the portrayal of Sukal while watching. I had strong like Rom vibes, like Max Grodencheck uh, playing Rom from Deep Space Nine, and just the way he was talking and the movements. Uh, just reminded me of a lot of him. And it may or not, it may not have been, been intentional, but reminiscent. In what way in particular? Because I would say, oh, wait, okay, because Rom was more mature, certainly, especially after having survived the Dominion. I War. mean, he was more mature, but he before that, he was, I mean, <laughs> a Ferengi. Sure. <laughs> the actors, you know, Ferengi. But just the way he talked, and the way he moved, and the way he held his head out when he talked, like he just had these mannerisms that felt mm. very strong. Max Burn. I did think Michael Burnham made a very good program i thought that was a cute scene okay anything about this episode we haven't talked about that you wanted to mention no i honestly what i was thinking about just now was after i mean you're going to be here quarantining with us for another week so that will hopefully let me see the i mean the next episode we'll watch and 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 uh i'll see some of the the resolutions to what happens with the with the smoke monster and all that but i i don't i was thinking about whether i'm going to keep watching the show after you and, and your CBS All Access go away, and I'm, uh, and I'm not sure I am actually. I, I enjoy it, but I don't know. It's first of all more fun to watch with a with a buddy. I agree. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I mean, if you need that resolution, there's always a free one week trial. Okay. Excellent. Well, then I, I'm just going to binge three seasons. <laughs> you can even just make me move out early. You don't need me. Oh, excellent. <laughs> uh, one more thing. Uh, oh. This episode was called Sukal after the ch- uh, child they were trying to rescue. But up until three days before it aired, it was listed everywhere online as being named The Citadel. That was the name of the episode. And so they changed it at the last minute. Kind of like how the episode Tuvix was originally called Symbiogenesis. And they were like, you know what? That's a little too oblique for us. Let's just name it after the character. I feel like they did the same thing. I don't here. know if they changed it or if they had an error. To me, it's the the thing I linked to you. Maybe maybe feel like it was just an error. Uh, and I, I feel like it's a thing. To me, it feels like from a production standpoint. At, at at some point, you provide you know whatever the some company provides some other company a list of of the the names of the episodes, 
real early on. And at some point it was changed and somebody didn't get the memo. And yeah. 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 I think that's more because we have me. the names for what are supposed to be, I think the next two, which are the last two episodes of the season, which is the good of the people and outside in that order. And everything else that we were given two months ago for the names of the episodes of season three have proven correct, like Terra Firma, Sanctuary, Unification 3, etc. So I, I do think it was called the Citadel at some point, whether it was meant to be leaked to us as part of the official episode list, I don't know. But I, I think the Citadel would have been a fine name for an episode. I feel like a lot of episode names are not so on the nose as this one is, like People of Earth, Forget Me Not, Far From Home. And then to just name this episode after the main character this seems I, very undiscovery. My confusion was when when we watched Terra Firma, that was Terra Firma Part 1, Terra Firma Part 2, correct? Yes. And and this one is clearly a Part 1. I mean, they left so much unresolved, I think, that why, why didn't they call this Sukal Part 1 or something like that? That's a good question. I mean, on one hand, the whole season, since it is serial can't really be watched separately from the others. But you're right that we don't know what Sukal's character arc will be. Like Terra Firma part one and two was Georgiou is sick. Here's how she gets better. There was. Right. But I mean, there's still people trapped on the planet, right? I mean, it, it, nothing got resolved. It was clearly feels like half of an episode to me. No, you're right. Like even the, even the end of season two, was a two-parter. Such Sweet Sorrow Part 1 was the penultimate episode, and then the finale was Part 2, because it was one big space battle, and that is how they joined them together. You can't watch one without the other. Maybe Sue Call is, uh, translates to Part 1. <laughs> it does sound like a very Vulcan <laughs> name to me. I mean, it's got, it begins with an S, it has uh, the apostrophe. Oh, the, he, he gave a definition of what it uh, means. It's, a, it's the end Hope of or... suffering, I think. Oh, that was like the, the yeah, what you was like, it. yeah, it was something like, a, like that. A new hope or something like that. Confusing <laughs> <laughs> uh, things. Oh, I'm sorry. It translates as beloved gift. That's what it is. Right. That's it. I mean, I mean, I've mentioned this a few times too. Like the the episode titles of this season or discovery have been weird. Like the opening, uh, the first episode of the season is the hope that is you part one. Mm-hmm. That's that's very weird because we've never gotten a part two. Uh, but there's also also been. I mean, it's weird having a part one and part two uh, of anything when you're on a serialized show, because uh, one leads into the other, pretty much. Uh, we had Unification 3. Right. <laughs> when I think the originals were Unification uh, Part 1 and 2. Uh, I mean, they're just Unification when it first aired, and then they split it up. Um, so, and, and then, I don't know, like, they're, just, oh, they're just weird titles this season, and that just continues on, like. Last week, we got a part one and part two last two weeks. And all of a sudden here, which is clearly a very part one and part two, or even part three, uh, there's nothing. Or part 11 of season three. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a serialized show. I don't know why they're doing part whatever. That's true. You know, it's not like the fourth season of Enterprise, which had several two-parters and three-parters that you could watch in their entirety separate from the other episodes in the season. You know, like you could watch a three-parter. Yeah. And then there's a one-parter after that. And you can watch the one-parter out of order, and it doesn't really matter. But that's not true for Discovery, where every episode leads into the next one. But this is, as far as I know, the anti-penultimate episode of the season. It's episode 11 of, I believe, 13. Uh, I think that's correct. Last season had 14 episodes, Yep, there's two left. There's two left. According to Wikipedia, anyway. See, that's not fair. Uh, okay, Ken, I'm changing us. my mind. I have to ask you to stay for an, an extra week so I can at least do the end of the season. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't want me to leave you hanging on um, the penultimate episode of the season? Exactly. Right. Okay. <laughs> and Jonathan, Jonathan Frakes. Yes, he has been a director on multiple episodes of Discovery, including this season, and I love his work. And I hear that he's a delight to work with, which is very consistent with my limited encounter with him at a convention like 15 years ago. <laughs> he's he's just delightful. Everybody I've met from the TNG crew, with the exception of Patrick Stewart, is delightful one-on-one. Patrick Stewart's not He's delightful? better with crowds. Uh-huh. I'll just leave it at that. Gotcha. I wasn't sure what you were going to say. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that is season three, 
episode 11 of Discovery. Any parting shots? Not for me. I got my pieces in. Okay. I'm tired. (laughs) Okay. It's been a delight having you on the show and a very pleasant surprise. As I've mentioned to Bree and to our listeners, uh, Star Trek has in many ways always been a shared experience for me. It's something that my start that it's something that my dad introduced me to on September 28th, 1987 on a Monday night. And for the next 18 years, it was something that we shared together. And I haven't had the opportunity to sit down and watch it with somebody. That's one of the reasons why Sabriel and I started this podcast is neither of us have somebody to sit down and watch Star Trek with. And so we watch it separately, but then we get to share it together on this podcast and being able to sit down and watch the show with you in person. And then also having you on this podcast, it's been the best of both worlds. So that's, I've I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah. Star Trek is is best as a community experience. I think we, we used to watch TNG. We'd had Star Trek nights and, and, you know, a bunch of people over at the house and pizza and, and, you know, watch the show. And that's, that's the best way to do it. You know, you just gave me the idea for a new Star Trek series, Star Trek nights. Like, what do they do when they're <laughs> off duty? Star Trek After Dark. Right. We've seen that in Lower lower Decks. Well, I mean, they already mentioned, ah, oh, Delta <laughs> crew. They do our jobs when, our, when we're asleep. That's weird. We don't like that. Uh-huh. So. All right. Well, okay. Remind our listeners one more time where to find you online. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Savitz, K-A-Y-S-A-V-E-T-Z. Very good. Thank you so much. And until next time. What do you guys say when you do the thing? No no one? No one? Okay. Take us out. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes and keep your hailing frequencies open by following us on Twitter at TransporterLock or subscribing to our podcast and email newsletter at TransporterLock.com.